Today, the word Brexit echoes across the world's media. Uh, I'm not going to comment on Brexit. It's tearing a country apart. It's actually tearing a lot of countries apart. But 60 years ago, if one very rich Irishman named John J. Hanley had succeeded in his audacious attempt to purchase Northern Ireland and gift it back to the Irish Republic, none of us would be listening to this. Northern Ireland does not have to rely on the Irish government or the European Union to prevent a return to borders of the past. His dream was for a united Ireland. We can to avoid a hard border emerging on our island. And his plan was very simple. It just involved the purchase of the six counties of Northern Ireland from Great Britain and a removal of the border. We've always said that there's only one red line in these matters, and that's when... 60 years ago, the issue of the Northern Ireland border was absent from world news headlines. However, the Connacht Telegraph of August 1955 carried a news item that would soon bring that same border back into full media focus. Last trip, it will be recalled, the world-famous Baron of Broadway visited 10 Downing Street and Stormont in an effort to purchase the six counties and end partition once and for all. We do not know what cards he might have up his sleeve for this trip. Throughout this period, the 1950s, when the Baron was trying to purchase Northern Ireland, he wrote to Antishok, Eamon de Valera, several British Prime Ministers. At one stage, he even wrote to King George VI, who referred the matter to the Home Secretary and who in turn concluded that he would not be justified in recommending to His Majesty to issue any commands on the matter. So how did the Baron of Broadway find himself in a position to offer anything up to €300 million in today's money to purchase Northern Ireland? Well, his story begins much earlier in the village of Strand, outside Newcastle West, in County Limerick. My name is Katrina Collins, and I don't personally know the Baron Hanley. I'm related to him, so how I'm related to him is through my father. Uh, my father would have known him as a child when he was growing up. Uh, John Hanley is, or the Baron of Broadway, as he called himself, is from the parish of Monaghay in County Limerick, where he was born and raised, and up until about the age of 19, when he headed to America via the United Kingdom, essentially to make his fortune. Back in Limerick, the Baron was known simply as John Hanley. His grandnephew Liam Collins, suspects the origin of the Baron's title. See, he was born. No, I would know it, it would be up uh, half a mile beyond that little bit of a village, known to be in the barony of Glynquin, on the side of the hill going up there. No, there's nothing there now on land, but there was houses there one time. That would be, and to see there is a, an old castle that was a, a lookout out to still, in in good condition because the border work spent years doing it. But uh, that's where I would think he took this idea of the Baron of Broadway from, the, the Barony of Glen Quinn. Um, he was born somewhere in the late 1800s. This is Katrina Collins, great grandniece of Mr. John J. Hanley, self-styled Baron of Broadway and definitely made his way to New York via England. He went his way through uh, Dublin, then on to London, where he worked in bars, essentially got his money together and went to New York via Southampton and worked for a time in the Waldorf Astorio, according to himself. So in anecdotes in the papers that he has told about himself, he always references being a, a barman in the Waldorf. Uh, there does seem to be that continuous connection to, to working in the hospitality industry, essentially, which he certainly kept up by running the, the speakeasy in Broadway. 
The speakeasy in question, an illegal drinking establishment in New York City, was the Broadway Café, owned and managed by John Hanley. How he came to acquire this establishment is unclear, but having met the right connections in his time at the Waldorf Astoria to those amassing huge fortunes in New York City would have certainly helped. From the Broadway Café in the years when the sale and distribution of alcohol was banned by law, he made his fortune. John J. Hanley was now in his mid-twenties. To succeed in his illegal business, it was necessary to take risks. And sometimes he got caught. The New York Times, published October 7, 1919. John J. Hanley, proprietor of a cafe at Broadway and 92nd Street, was fined $500 yesterday by federal judge William B. Shepard after pleading guilty to a second violation of the Wartime Prohibition Act. A $500 fine in 1919 was huge money, but worse was to come. The New York Times published September 29, 1919. Automobile bandits visited the cafe and hotel of John J. Hanley and after holding up Mr. Hanley, escaped with nearly $1,400. Hanley said four bandits entered the cafe as he was about to close up. A six-footer, apparently the leader, pointed a revolver at him they then ordered Hanley to open the safe. When he said he had forgotten the combination, the leader fired a shot over his shoulder. Hanley then remembered the combination. Despite such setbacks, Hanley's business forged ahead. Throughout the Roaring Twenties, Hanley appeared to mass a grand fortune and during this decade, he is reported to dress in a silk hat and sport a diamond-studded cane. He also got married to an Irish-American girl, Margaret Scanlon. They had one child, a girl, and she died young of meningitis. During this time, he also begins to occasionally return to Ireland. And how Handley could earn such wealth in so short a time was only recently answered in an article which appeared in the Mahuna Parish Annual covering local news in the areas near the Baron's hometown of Newcastle West. During the 1920s, it was suggested that the young Hanley try his luck with bootlegging, which was all the rage at the time when alcohol was illegal in his adopted country. Having made contact with known pochin makers in Connemara, Hanley, or as he was fast becoming known, the Baron of Broadway, made arrangements for Pochin to be taken from Spanish Point in County Clare to Montreal in Canada via grain ships. The Pochin was transported by road to the USA border and from there distributed across the United States. In short, the Baron of Broadway had turned from retailer to wholesaler of illicit liquor. He is still 20 years off making his first bid to purchase Northern Ireland, but now resides in a nine-roomed penthouse apartment on Broadway and tours America in a chauffeured Packard automobile, as his great-grandniece Katrina uncovered during recent researches. Uh, and in one particular journey across the States, he was driving a Packard uh, limousine and he made mention of the fact that he had six more of those at home in a garage and uh, that in fact he was on his way to Detroit on the way back to New York to place an order for six more 
and he did indeed go to Detroit and, and for sure of course at the time that would have been where the cars would have been ordered from anyway and as we know now from his history Detroit is actually where he ended up as well in the end. On his visits back to Ireland the Baron regularly visited his home village of Strand in County Limerick. This was at a time when Ireland had just been partitioned north and south through the establishment of a hard border. The Baron of Broadway now had enough money to indulge himself in philanthropy. Perhaps this is when the idea of purchasing Northern Ireland and gifting it to the Republic first occurred to him. That aspiration wouldn't materialise for another 20 years. In any event, throughout the late 1920s, he began sharing his wealth with those less fortunate. News of which made it into the society pages of the New York papers that his great-grandniece Katrina had uncovered. So there's, a, there's a, a, a piece in this that talks about his generosity. For 20 years, the Baron gave $1,000 every Christmas to an orphanage run by an order of sisters in New York. Now, for 20 years, $1,000, $1,000 anyway for someone to give it, but for 20 years, he gave $1,000 to this orphanage run by the order of sisters in New York and 50,000 to the De La Salle Brothers Seminary in Manhattan College for equipment and improvements. There's actually a plaque on the wall for him there, so that his name is perpetuated in a plaque in the college situated beneath a statue of St. Patrick, which he donated, having commissioned the renowned Italian sculptor Volpi to sculpt it. Apart from being quite generous to his own family, which we would know personally, and to his chauffeurs and to the people of Strand, he was very generous in sporting terms, so he would have arranged for trips for GAA teams, particularly Kerry. Now, we are from Limerick, so we might let that one slide. But there is, it's very interesting to see he is either hosting very elaborate events, lots of food, lots of drink, lots of uh, pomp and ceremony and speeches, or he is the guest of honour at a lot of these events. But the uh, one of the common threads does seem to be the, um, the GAA and his, his generosity with the teams that are based in New York or with the teams that come visiting over and back. But philanthropy is a double-edged sword. No one likes to be left out. As a letter published in the New York Advocate in 1928 reveals. Genmo Strand, Newcastle West, 1928. Baron J.J. Handley, Broadway, New York City. My dear Baron, I take the liberty of writing these few lines to you to wish you the compliments of the season. I am aware of your generous gifts to a number of people in the village of Strand at Christmas, gifts which were very much needed this hunter, the hardest and most distressful we have experienced in years. I would point out to you that in your generous distribution of holiday gifts, you did not include myself. I'm sure it was an oversight on your part. I was speaking to W. McCarthy and he advised me to drop you a line and that my request would not be in vain. The friends here had a glorious Christmas through your kindness, trusting you will see your way to help one who is amongst the poorest of the poor, renewing my wish to you for a very prosperous new year. I am yours, James Murphy. As Ireland was fighting the war for independence, and then the Civil War, the Baron of Broadway was insulated from conflict, but busy gathering together a fortune. But all that came crashing down in October 1929. 
October 29, 1929, Black Tuesday, the New York Stock Exchange is in a panic. Frantic investors have scrambled to unload their stocks at any price. Everyone wants to sell. No one wants to buy. Suddenly, even the most gilt-edged securities are practically valueless. The stock market crash has come, and the Great Depression has begun. Whether through accident or design, the Baron seems to have somehow managed to escape financial ruin in the Wall Street crash. He diversified. Many investors simply couldn't take the loss. Years later, the Baron revealed his survival strategy as he was being driven to the Irish border by his chauffeur, Austin Gannon. He says, I was in real estate and bootlegging. So, yeah, you can put your own pictures on that. And he says, I wasn't like thousands of other people. Why? I said, I didn't jump out the fucking window. He said, <laughs> so, you know, he was a great character. I didn't, and, and, and uh, he says, I stayed put and I came back and made money. He may not have lost all his wealth, but John J. Hanley lost something perhaps more precious. When his money left him, so too did his wife, Margaret. In the early years of the Great Depression, he again appears in the New York newspapers, this time as a slum landlord. The New York Times published March 15, 1932. Baron of Broadway is cleared. A charge of not supplying hot water to tenants at 1398 3rd Avenue, brought against John J. Hanley, the owner, was dismissed by Magistrate Emilio in Yorkville Court yesterday after the agent for the building had testified that tenants, before renting apartments, were informed that there were no hot water facilities in the building. Hanley, sometimes known as the Baron of Broadway, carries a diamond-studded cane, which is said to have cost $7,680. The Baron Hanley began establishing a pattern of returning to his native place every second year. He would arrive by ocean liner into Cove in County Cork, together with his big American car and his entourage. His arrival added a splash of welcome colour to a black and white Ireland. Particularly helped by the appearance of his specially painted green, white and gold limousine. Johnny Doherty was one of those who flocked to the quayside to witness the spectacle of the Baron's arrival. At, at the moment we're looking at Spike Island and the far ground and behind that you have Fort Davis. This is the harbour proper here. This particular morning, I don't know what day of the week it was, that I came down here, I heard there was a dignitary coming off and someone set it up at the school, the band of Broadway's coming in today. So I better go down and have a look at him. Now, I've seen quite a lot of dignitaries coming in here, like Cardinal Cushing, Abin Costello, General Eisenhower, where we're standing now. I was standing about here. Uh, hi, Tony. Uh, grand. This fellow at the band of Broadway arrived. And he would have been there by that uh, white window there with the three million emigrated from Queenstown, like. And uh, he was talking to a lot of his people that were with him. They came on the same liner. Baron, to me, like, he wasn't that tall. He was, you know, kind of an average, about my own size. And that he wore a flat cap, you know, one of these flats here with the heavy rim right around it. 
He had light rimmed glasses and he had a real American accent. And he was waiting for his car to come out of there. And I remember he had two little green-white yellow flags up in the car and he had a crowd around him here. And there was one yank standing here alongside of me and the baron was up there and he says, "Um, my friend Digger O'Dell is with me. He's the last man to leave you down. He's an undertaker. (laughs) He was like a... um, (laughs) For all the world, a fellow going for an election. He was, you know, he was uh, telling stories. This fellow that was standing alongside of me, he said, Oh, he's some character, the Baron, he says. I didn't actually talk to the Baron, only what I saw and what I heard them say. But um, I just wanted to see the Baron, he said. A returning Yank was always great news locally. Liam Collins, the Baron's grand-nephew, recalls the excitement of those early visits of the Baron to his home place. I was about seven or thereabouts, as I would imagine. And I remember remember him on three occasions coming to Ireland, because I can remember three of the drivers, all deceased, of course, at this stage, and he would stay here in Newcastle West, in Egan's Hotel. Now, it's no longer a hotel, it's a public house now, known as the Central. He would visit Monaghay, because that's where he was born, Monaghay, Glyn Quinn, that would be the area, and Monaghay School. He always visited that and threw out some money there to the coins. He used to stay around for five or six weeks, but he used to take us for drives in the car. And he was fairly exact, all right. <laughs> my, my sister here can verify that for you. Well, I used to get car sick, so he wouldn't take me in the car then. (laughs) No one knows if the Baron could drive. Reports in the US papers always say that he was chauffeur-driven. And his visits to Ireland were no different. Uh, The first chauffeur I remember him, he was Ambrose, that were known as the Millionaire Ambrose's, here from Newcastle West. Then, after that, he had a fellow by the name of uh, Jackie Nash, he was here from down the Kill Road, and then he had a chap by the name of, he was Guiney or Guinea, whatever they like to call him. He'd be from the tour in a fuller direction. Those three I remember quite well. During the 30s and 40s, the Baron didn't just visit Ireland regularly, he also went on the circuit followed by the rich and famous. And this during a time when the world was at war and many were suffering shortages and rationing. During that time, he visited Havana, Mexico, Hollywood and Rome. Some of the world's geographic boundaries were redrawn in the wake of the Second World War. The 1948 Republic of Ireland Act enshrined 26 counties of Ireland and gave the country a new name. The Republic of Ireland. The six counties of Northern Ireland would remain part of Great Britain. This was 20 years before Bloody Sunday and 50 years away from the Good Friday Agreement. In 1950, John J. Hanley arrived to offer what he viewed as a simple solution. Buy the six counties of Northern Ireland back from Great Britain and unify the island. His initial bid is referenced in historian Dennis O'Driscoll's book Reflections on Limerick. 
in the relevant chapter, he picks up on the Baron's Republican vitriol. A vociferous opponent of partition, the Baron became an avowed proponent of its abolition and the reunification of the six counties with the motherland. But, unlike those expats who bewailed what they called the great injustice from a distance, John Hanley decided to do something about it. He let it be known that he was a man on a mission. He would spend his fortune attempting to get back for the newly declared republic what he described as the stolen six counties. Let this border be abolished forever, he thundered. His major attempt to address his great grievance came when he announced he would travel north to confront the bigoted Unionist Prime Minister Basil Brooke, alias Lord Brookborough, who in 1933 infamously boasted that he never employed Catholics on his estate and recommended that his fellow Unionists do the same. The Baron would offer the Premier a million pounds or more to hand back the stolen six counties. As an established successful businessman, why did Hanley use such provocative inflammatory language if his offer was serious? The question arises, was he just hell-bent on generating embarrassment for the old enemy? His offer of one million was declined. He later increased his bid to six million dollars, one million per county. This too was rejected. Undeterred, the Baron wrote a larger cheque and arrived on the doorstep of Number 10 Downing Street later on in 1950. His new offer was reported by newspapers right across the globe, including the Sunday News from New York City. Broadway Baron offers to buy Northern Ireland for ERA, no sale. London, July 15th. John J. Hanley, who calls himself the Baron of Broadway, was turned down by Prime Minister Clement Attlee today in his attempt to buy up the six counties of Northern Ireland and present them to the Southern Republic. Hanley, florid, red-headed, and 57, whose friends call him a bit of a fellow full of imagination, drove up to Attlee's official residence at Number 10 Downing Street. The former owner of Broadway Saloon, Hanley was attired in straw hat and baggy pants. He carried a gold-headed cane. I want to purchase Northern Ireland and give it to Era, Hanley told the footman who opened the door. I wish to offer Mr. Attlee $12,600,000 for it. The poker-faced footman inquired politely if the Baron had an appointment. When he said no, he was politely asked to leave. He drove off in a big limousine, with American and Irish flags waving in the breeze. Hanley said he and his gold-headed cane had already visited Belfast to arrange the purchase of Northern Ireland, a fact which Belfast police verified with the added information that a riot started before the Baron of Broadway could see a single official. By this stage, the Baron had twice travelled to Belfast, where the tricolours were ripped from the wings of his car, and his visits incited riots. Add to this his visit to Number 10 Downing Street, and you have three bids for the six counties all flatly refused. If his plans were indeed to cause maximum embarrassment to the British government, then over the next year he looked to widen the stage for his ambition and take his scheme beyond the political sphere. The Baron of Broadway was, 
After all, a man with society connections. Connacht Telegraph, 24th of November 1951. Baron John J. Hanley, who visited Castlebar this year and while in town donated £100 as a first subscription to start a swimming pool, has been offered $100,000 for 90 days' work, making a picture showing his two trips across the border when the trickler was torn off his car by Belfast police. The Hollywood Film Company making the offer would require the Baron to live in Hollywood for the 90 days it would take to complete the picture. But as the Baron would, in that time, have to neglect his other business interests, he has refused the offer on the grounds that the price is not high enough for him. One Hollywood scenario writer says in a Brooklyn paper, For months I have been searching for an outstanding character for my new picture scenario, and was almost frantic when fate threw in my path one of the most picturesque personalities I have ever met. Few men have had the glamorous, thrilling, dramatic life of Baron John J. Hanley of Broadway. Now we must bring that to the public on the screen. It seems that the Baron's society connections to Hollywood didn't carry the weight that he hoped for. That film was never made. Throughout this period, the 1950s, the Baron liked to use the Eris Hotel in Castle Bar as a base. By then he was a national celebrity. Greyhounds, swimming pools, fishing trophies bore his name. His connection to Castle Bar was a somewhat romantic one. The intimacy of long car journeys can bring about confidential disclosure. Austin Gannon, his last chauffeur, heard one such revelation from Hanley. And he told me something. He told me something in confidence. That there was a, a, a family named Tierney on Darius Hotel. And her husband died. And a Mrs Tierney was running the hotel and he got very friendly with her. So that would be the basis of the story there. We got angry at him. You should speak freely to me. He maintained he got engaged to Mrs Tierney and that that was the first time he was here and that he gave her a very expensive ring, engagement ring. And Mrs Tierney apparently fell down the stairs in the hotel one morning and was found dead at the bottom of her stairs. I remember that myself now. And... He was very upset about her, and he inquired about her ring, and there was no ring on her finger, and it was never found. 1955 was the Baron's last trip to Ireland. It was two years since the movie project failed. In the past, his provocative trips to Belfast generated the publicity that Hanley craved so much. He was hell-bent on going north for one last time, to create as much noise as possible, and this time with a fatter check in his inside pocket. So we had a journey to Belfast. It was a Pontiac car, and he had it painted in the Irish flag colours, it's green, white and iron. And uh, it was a fine big American car, eight-cylinder engine in it, an automatic gearbox in it and all like that. But I got used to it very quick, left-hand drive. And, you know, it was very spectacular looking. So we were met at the border with the two police cars, RUC police cars and an inspector. He, he said to, to us, uh, I would recommend that you take down the Irish flag from the car. We had two flags in the car. 
and uh, it's the first time I ever seen an RUC man in my life. <laughs> Green uniform, he had a red head and the cap sitting on the top. I can still see him to Parkridge there. And I was looking out the window and there was this revolver as near as this to me in my face. Jeez, I was terrified. And he says to me, Austin, go out and take down the flag. So I took down the flag and wrapped it up and put it in the car and we took off. The other flag was a paper flag. That was never interfered with or touched. The cavalcade drove north from the border. RUC escort vehicles back and front. The huge Pontiac limousine, still provocatively painted in green, white and gold with shamrocks emblazoned on both front doors. The world's press awaited their arrival in Belfast. We went into Belfast this evening about five o'clock in the evening with the escort. So we ended up in the Grand Central Hotel in Belfast at the time. It was the hotel at the time, you know. Christ, the place was crowded with people and reporters and there was no television that time, I think. It was uh, all cameramen and things like that. So he, he went into the hotel and the, inside in the conference room, there must be a hundred or 150 people there. In, in journalists, paper people and everything. And he was sitting up on the high stool so he could see everyone. And they were all firing questions at him. This, that and the other. And his mission was to buy the six counties. Austin is the last living witness to the events of that evening in September 1955, when the world's press handled a cheque for $24 million. Imagine a room in which a cheque valued in today's money at $250 million is being passed hand to hand. The real question is, was that cheque genuine? And they were all asking them all sorts of questions. And it, it, some reporter says, could we see the cheque? And it was passed all the way around to the hall. There was a huge crowd in it. Now, the police were inside there as well with us. And uh, that was grand. They all looked at the cheque and things like that. And later on, someone says to Mr. Hanley, could we see that cheque again? And the place was silent. Couldn't be found. Check couldn't be found. Jesus, the police shut down everything, locked doors and everything like that. And a big search was going on in it. And it was a bit touchy now at this stage. A knock came to the door. It was locked. A knock from outside came to the door. And the police opened the door and in comes a reporter. And he says, the reporter says, what's all the excitement about? What's going on? And it says, the check is missing. It's not, he says. I have it. There it is, there. And sure, it was a relief. And he says, I had it down in the bank, he says, and the cheque is genuine. It's genuine. When it comes to the Baron of Broadway, it is sometimes difficult to separate fact from fiction. In the days that followed that press conference, Austin's suspicions were raised by rumours that reached his ears. I'm not 100% sure that it was at the Barton's check at all. There was somebody behind him that, that, that was interested in buying the North. So the check was genuine. But as far as I know, he was there as a front for somebody. That's as much as I can know about it. While we'll never really know the truth behind the Baron of Broadway's cheeky offers to purchase Northern Ireland, 
the most plausible explanation may lie in the answer provided by New York historian Gary Egan. So the United Irish Counties Association New York was established in 1904 and it had a main aim and actually still does have a main aim to promote Irish culture and society in the city. But as the title of the organisation would suggest, its political wish was to see the establishment of an independent, united 32-county republic. In the 1940s, a deliberate stance was taken to highlight the plight of divided Ireland. And they named it the Anti-Partition Campaign and believed that by publicising the unnatural division of the island at every single available opportunity, they might embarrass Britain into entering reunification talks. John J. Hamley would have been a prominent committee member of the New York Association, and actually he was the guest of honour at one of the dinners, uh, and they presented him with a commission portrait to mark the work he had done for the organisation. And if you want to talk really in terms of embarrassing Britain, there was no better man capable to do this than the Baron Hanley of Broadway. Whatever about the veracity of that check, the following day, news of Hanley's offer made global headlines. Winnipeg Free Press, September 16, 1955. Millionaire trying to bribe orange men into Republic. Irish-born John Hanley of New York drove into Northern Ireland with a $24 million check Thursday and offered to buy the country for the Irish Republic. Hanley, 63, who calls himself the Baron of Broadway, got a gruff reception from some bystanders. But he drove on undaunted into Belfast, flying the Irish Republic flag from his car. The check was made out to Lord Brookborough, Prime Minister of the six counties of Northern Ireland, which are joined to Britain inside the framework of the United Kingdom. The Baron never did get to present his cheque to Sir Basil Brooke, the Prime Minister of Northern Ireland. Immediately following the press conference, the RUC escorted him as far as the border. Previously, his presence in Belfast provoked riots, and the dock workers were due to finish the evening shift. The Baron was standing on dangerous ground. Within weeks, the Baron would make his final offer ever for Northern Ireland. He would travel to the steps of Number 10 Downing Street to do it. Before leaving, he called to his home place in County Limerick. His grandnephew Liam recalls overhearing his mother's scepticism at the time. I can remember travelling to Downing Street, and that time we weren't told much anyway. So we were too young, you know, except to overhead something you weren't told be honest about it, you know, in those days. I remember my mother talking about he going, she, she was making a laugh of it anyway, like she says, you know, this is not going to to work, but let him off anyway, she says. You know, he, he seemed to have confided in her about that. So off he went, driven by his chauffeur, Austin Gannon, in his green, white and gold shamrock bedecked limousine, ferried across the Irish Sea and straight to the door of number 10 Downing Street to meet Prime Minister Anthony Eden. But I knew where Downing Street was, so we pulled up. But we wouldn't be let up Downing Street, it was a cul-de-sac. But we're just along the corner of the road, there's a place kept for us. There's dozens of police around the place. So he was dressed in black, this with his hard hat and all like that, and his letters and what have you. Never a man to miss a press opportunity, the Baron of Broadway had choreographed his arrival at the Prime Minister's residence. 
Katrina, his great-grandniece, is holding a photograph from the time. This is him outside 10 Downing Street holding the tricolour as he's trying to, to meet the, the Prime Minister at the time. He, ha he even has a coronation and a fob watch, you'll notice as well. He's in his full morning suit attire. He's wearing a, essentially a top and tails. He's wearing a top hat. He's got, uh, he's got glasses on. He's a portly man, I would describe him as. He's wearing a pair of white gloves. You can see um, a wristwatch on his hand as well. And he is unfurling a tricolour from one hand to the other in the photograph while facing the camera. As on all previous occasions, whether in Belfast or Dublin, the Baron found it difficult to get his message through. His cheque on this occasion, the 3rd of October 1955, is believed to have been for $32 million, although Austin says he never caught sight of it. And the tours walked up Downing Street to number 10, and there's a few steps up to it. He says, Austin, will you ring the bell? So I knocked on the door of 10 Downing Street, and the door opened after a short while, and he walked up the steps, and he says, I wish to speak to the Prime Minister. And he was informed, told by the secretary, whatever he was, that he wasn't in or he wasn't available at the time. But he would convey his request to the Prime Minister. And he handed them in letters that he wished to buy the six counties. Well, that did happen now, you know. So, uh, we, 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 after a sharp thing, the secretary says, no, the Prime Minister was not available or not in or something like that. So uh, we left there and we hit off then again. He was disappointed. The Baron of Broadway's offers were never formally refused, just ignored. So chauffeur and Baron returned back to Ireland, the six counties still within the realm of the United Kingdom of Great Britain. And some weeks later, they would part company for the last time the Baron back to the US, and Austin back to his day job as a fitter. He said, you said, he did say to me, I, I want you to come back to America. I'll pay your whole way, he says. And uh, he says, I'll have you either a firefighter or a policeman in New York straight away, whichever you wanted to do. I didn't want to go anywhere else, so I didn't go. A year passed by, the world moved on and tensions grew in Northern Ireland. One day in December 1956, Austin Gannon picked up a daily newspaper. And this day, in the morning, you're going to work, you'd always buy the paper. And uh, sometime during the day, I was at lunchtime or having a break, I saw this on the paper. Garden of Broadway, knocked down by car and killed in Detroit, I think it was. There was a little piece in the paper about it and that nobody wanted to claim the body, that he was penniless. And she I was stunned. The death cert for John J. Hanley records him as retired from the pawnbroking business and residing in rented accommodation in a Detroit boarding house. The newspaper reports that followed detailed a very different life story to the ones that he himself told. Baron of Broadway dies in accident. A body in a Detroit mortuary has been identified as that of John J. Hanley, self-styled Baron of Broadway. Mr. Hanley was killed in a traffic accident. 
In his pockets were clippings describing him as the most popular Irishman on Broadway. Mr. Hanley, who was a native of County Limerick, made a fortune in New York and lost it in the crash of 1929. He once owned the Broadway Cafe in New York, but went to Detroit in 1942 and operated a pawn shop there. The Baron's death throws up more questions than answers. Did he in fact lose everything in the Wall Street crash of 1929? And if so, how was he able to give away hundreds of thousands of dollars throughout the course of his lifetime? Just 12 months after gracing the pages of global newspapers with a cheque in his hand for $32 million, how did he wind up dead, penniless and his body unclaimed in a mortuary? The Baron's great-grandniece, Katrina Collins, offers a glimpse of a man searching to relive his days of faded glory. But he was living in a local boarding house, so he didn't own that property. There was a, there was a manager in that property. Um, and the hotel manager's name was J.C. Park, and he said that Hanley liked to sleep all day and spend his night sitting around the hotel lobby telling anyone who would listen about his past exploits. With no one coming forward to pay for his burial, the city of Detroit interred him in Mount Olivet Cemetery in an unmarked grave. But uh, we visited, because we found online where he, was, where he was buried, so we visited the cemetery and we were brought to the grave and there's no headstone there. Um, it would be nice to add a headstone to it, all right, but it's a beautiful graveyard. It's probably ironic that he was knocked down by a car as well when you consider where he was living and his love of, of big American cars. Ten days after the Baron Hanley's death, on December the 12th, 1956, the IRA launched their first border campaign with the bombing of a BBC transformer in Derry, the burning of a courthouse in Maharafelt, and the blowing up of an army barracks in Enniskillen. All that would follow would turn the Baron John J. Hanley's naivety into harmless, unachievable fantasy. And to this day, his chauffeur and family still wonder, where did all the money go? No, my mother wrote to the Irish Embassy that time. Now, what reply she got back was they didn't know whether he had money or not. And the Embassy done some bit of inquiring and I couldn't ascertain whether he had any wealth left or not. So we'll never know. I, could, I, I still don't believe it. I feel sad about it. Jesus, yes. There's something funny happened. I don't know what happened. But I, I cannot see how he's died penniless. I, I'm still puzzled to this day about the money. He had money from somewhere in the 1950s, but possibly not to the level that he had when he was in New York. But I haven't found the hidden bank accounts yet, so perhaps they're in Switzerland. This was the story of John J. Hanley, the Baron of Broadway. A man who made and a man who lost a fortune. Someone who dreamed big, but in the end came to realise some dreams just cannot be bought. They are beyond price. <laughs>